Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Mayor Fred Eisenberger says the Hamilton is facing a budget tsunami, and it's going to be very challenging to negotiate. In an op-ed piece this week, former Ontario PC leader Patrick Brown says the Conservatives need a Bill Davis style of leader if they ever want to win government. And also, there is a forum organized this Monday evening by a few city councillors with Diane Sachs, Ontario's former Environment Commissioner, to discuss municipal leadership when dealing with climate change. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It was a pretty grim session uh, earlier this week uh, as the Finance Department sat down with city councillors and uh, talked about the uh, budget proposals for 2020. And uh, this thing, uh, well, it's about as frightening as a Stephen King novel, I guess, if you look at some of the details here. Probably the biggest challenge that Hamilton City Council has had in years, if not decades, to try to come to grips with this. Uh, Brad Clark has seen a bunch of those over the years. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Brad. How are you today? I'm doing fine. How about yourself? Bill? Good, good. Uh, did you find a silver lining in all these budget numbers? I, uh, there's got to be one someplace. There's always a silver lining. We just <laughs> haven't found it yet. <laughs> I, I know that every year we say this, that, okay, yeah, there's going to be this challenge and that challenge, but this just kind of likes, a, uh, from the numbers I'm reading anyway, this is almost like a perfect storm of, of, of budget uh, problems here. I mean, everything seems to be piled on you guys all at once here. Yeah, the stars are really lining up with a, a bunch of significant hits for us. Uh, we started off with numbers in July that showed us looking at a levy increase of about $62 million, which would have been uh, 6.7 on the uh, 6.7% increase for, for homeowners and their taxes. And we now have it at $52 million, which is a drop of $10 million, which is excellent, but it's still at $5.5 million, which would equate, equate to uh, approximately a $200 increase per household. Uh, which is a significant uh, increase. So we still have lots of work to do. Well, the, and we can talk about this, and we're going to get into some of the things, because I know you and I talked months ago uh, when the Ford government talked about uh, some funding cuts that were going to have an impact on all municipalities. Now, they, they backed away from that for the short term, and, of course, that means they're going into effect next year. So there's that pressure, and we, you can talk to us about that. But the usual things that, that cities have to deal with on an ongoing basis, operational costs, uh, things like insurance premiums, a number of different things like that, uh, are all uh, seem to be on the increase this year. Yeah, uh, there's no doubt. I mean, we're we're in collective bargaining, and 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 I have to say that the union leaders and the membership have been tremendously respectful of the city's position, and they have been um, um, reasonable in their requests, and and we truly appreciate that. But 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 the, be that as it may, we're looking at a $12.5 million increase just in salary and wage benefits. Uh, then we have our contractual increases of about $2.2 million. Uh, we were surprised to see a, a significant hit on our insurance premium of $2 million. Uh, and then we had a, a WSIB shortfall of $1.5 million. So all of these things add up, and I mean, just those alone add up to 2% tax increase. Uh, and that's without getting into boards and agencies and shortcomings from the provincial government. And so, as you say, they, they, you know, they, they, they really start to compound. Um, and the struggle now is how do we maintain services uh, with and, and not increase those taxes uh, to the point where people are really um, challenged. Well, Brad, in past years, of course, this, this initial meeting or series of meetings, of course, 
invariably get the response from even some of the council colleagues that, oh, yeah, okay, the staff always come back, and this is, you know, this is the horror show, and this is terrible, but then they come back and they find these efficiencies and these savings, and it, it, all of a sudden it becomes a lot more palatable. Uh, I didn't get that message from what Mr. Segarik was saying yesterday. He said there's not a whole lot to work with here. You don't have much wiggle room left. No, I mean, and, and we have to be realistic. Over the last 20 years, I would say, um, council has uh, been very careful at setting their targets and tried to get it down to the cost of inflation, and, and we pretty much averaged that out, which is, which is good. Um, but because we did that, over that same period of time, staff have come in with reductions in budgets to departments, and we now are in a situation where there's not a whole lot of room left to trim across the city of Hamilton. And on top of that, a number of these cost drivers are not related directly to city services. They're from outside of the city. They're costs that are coming into the city that we have no choice but to pay. So when you start to look at all of that, I think Mr. Zagarek gave us some pretty good unfettered financial advice in terms of where we really are and that this is going to be a challenging issue. And I think that's why he put on the table we're going to have to look at different things as as, as a team to figure out how we're going to balance this out um, and, and, and make sure that the residents are not hit with an exorbitant tax bill that many of them, as you know, can't afford to pay. Brad, this isn't really a surprise to well veterans like you that have been around for a while because I know that former city manager Chris Murray has been warning us for years. I mean, I'd have him on every year as they were getting down to the crunch time for budgets and say, this is great that you're at the rate of inflation, but he says we can't do this every year. I mean, there are so many pressures that are studying to mount, and it sounds as if this is the year that the dam has burst. And again, I want to remind our listeners, this is not just Hamilton. Uh, most cities in Ontario are facing the same conundrum. Absolutely. I, I mean, you, you, we have the province who has very clearly um, started off anyway looking at austerity for the province, and, and, and they, so they've indicated significant cuts across the board uh, to funding for municipal services, um, their portion of, the sh- of those funding. Um, right now, we're still looking at $5.4 million in budget drivers that are from provincial impacts. And so those things, you know, if the province doesn't reverse their position, we have to absorb them somehow. And there's only so much money in the pie, if you will. And so if if we're putting more things in, then we're going to have to take some things out because we simply don't have room for it all. And that's what becomes the challenge. So we need to, I think we need to be engaged with our, the, the public so that they understand what's going on, where the pressures are and what we're looking at in terms of potential uh, realignments that, that could impact services. I, I know that the, the hue and cry is going to be from an awful lot of people, well, just trim the fat, what's the matter with you guys? Uh, but that's a process that, if I recall, Brad, has been going on for quite some time. I mean, last budget year, I guess it was, you eliminated a number of managerial positions among city staff, and you've, you've done a lot of that trimming already. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. We The, the previous term of council, they... they they did a, a, an excellent job in, in reducing management positions and, and, and eliminated a number of full-time equivalent jobs um, and, and absorbed them into the system. So there is limited flex there. And the challenge that I think we have is that there is an expectation from the broader community of a certain level of service. 
So if that expectation is not changed and we eliminate those services, then there's going to be significant pushback from, from the community. So we have to have a really good um, conversation about what levels of services people are willing to talk about. For example, in the past, as you know, uh, there was discussion about collecting garbage every two weeks, which would save millions of dollars in, on the operating budget. Um, and the residents were not supportive of that, and council did not go down that road. That will likely come up again in this budget conversation. And so when it becomes a question of taxes going up or um, minimizing the tax increase by changing the service level, will the residents be accepting of that change and, and that we don't know. Well, and therein lies the problem. And that's, that's I guess, the big question every year at budget time for city council is, is what is uh, what are the service levels that, that people are going to be willing to accept in situations like this? And they've been able to skate around that in past years, but I, 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 I'm getting the sense that it's going to be on the table and they're going to have to make some hard decisions. Uh, you mentioned garbage collection. That's certainly one core service that could be impacted. Uh, snow clearing is another one. Uh, that uh, other cities have had to deal with, and they've had to cut back on service deliveries there. I know that's never going to be popular with anybody because uh, a lot of people think the snow clearing you have already at place is not good enough, although it is one of the best in the province. But it, it's there's a cost to this, and, and you, right now you're, you're looking under cushions now to try to save some coins here. Uh, I mean, realistically, everything that we do as a municipality, we're providing services. That's, that's the bottom line. That's what, that's what we do as a municipality. So if we're going to lower our costs, that means an automatic lowering of services. So um, how much comfort is there in doing that, in reducing, for example, service hours for, for, for facilities or programming, um, closing underutilized facilities, uh, facilities that, that just don't have the audience, the patrons coming in, or they're in such dire need of repair, we don't have the money for it, so do we close those facilities and subsequently you would lower your operating costs? Uh, eliminating service levels where the service is being underutilized. So we need to start to look at all of those things, um, but I think m- everyone around the table is cognizant of the fact that people appreciate the level of service that we have, but people are at the breaking point in terms of their ability to pay. And so that's why we need to have a broader public conversation, in my opinion, uh, Bill, in my opinion, about those types of service changes. Brad, what about some of the sacred cows that councillors have been unwilling to touch in the past? And uh, the selling off of assets, for instance. I, I know that we've had discussions in the past about, uh, you know, do we need three golf courses, a city-owned golf courses? Do we need McCassa Lodge and Wentworth Lodge? I mean, you're only required to have one. Uh, there are some places, and, and the council just doesn't seem to want to go down that road. Is this year they're going to have to have that discussion? I think there will be a discussion about it. I don't know whether or not there is an appetite for any of those or all of those. Um, we have many municipal centers. That's been discussed in the past. So on, in the era of online services, do, does the municipality still have a need for municipal centers in all of the former municipalities? Now, I, I can hear people cringing because if they're living in that community and they, they go to that particular facility, they rely on that facility but by the same token it now becomes the balancing act is it a two hundred dollar increase in your taxes this year um is it worth it for you to keep the facility open in that community or are there other ways of the municipality providing those services 
I think the only way we can get at those decisions is to really have a good conversation with residents in all of those communities and across the city in terms of what services, what service level do they really want that they, they, they would support an increase in taxes to maintain those services? And contrary, which services are they willing to have a lower amount uh, in order for us to, to balance the budget and bring it in at an affordable amount for people across the municipality. I, I'm going to throw another one at you that uh, that I know you've had some <laughs> opinions about in the past. Uh, and, and, no, this is this is this this is this what I call slush fund that that the inner city councillors have been getting for the last number of years, and I know I know the rationale for it. It's supposed to be an, like an equalization payment, but we're talking about eight million dollars annually right now that they spend dis- at their own discretion. Uh, which is probably money that could be much better spent by city staff than it would by individual councillors. Yet any time I bring this up or anybody from the outlying areas, either yourself or Councillor Ferguson or others, uh, all of a sudden these guys get their backs up. But, I mean, I I think it's time to put everything on the table here. Well, I think that was the intention of the presentation uh, by staff, is that everything should be on the table. Um, That fund that you're talking about, that came about as a result of changes to area rating, which will be under discussion again this year, this time on transit. Um, And there was going to be uh, tax increases in, and there were tax increases in the outlying suburban area, and there was going to be, at that time, you'll recall, a corresponding tax reduction in the neighbourhood of of 1% uh, for some of the older wards, wards 1 through 8. And so instead of, of, of... lowering the taxes in that manner and creating a big backlash in the broader community that taxes went up in the suburbs and went down in in the wards one through eight what they chose to do was maintain the tax dollars and create these funds for ostensibly capital projects in wards one through eight that may be a topic of discussion because ultimately if they were to eliminate that now that would mean some type of tax reduction for the residents in wards one through eight but that's for all of the councillors to decide within some form of good public engagement and discussion on it, and I don't know what would happen there. Uh, the uh, other one, of course, is the area rating on transit. There's yeah. a big push by some councillors to eliminate area rating on transit. Now, it's important to recognize that the suburban community, when you look at the total transit uh, flow, only 5% of all of the transit that is provided in the city of Hamilton is flowing out into the suburbs is flowing out into the rural areas and, and the suburbs of the former municipalities of, of Hamilton. And so then the question is, do we eliminate that area rating and increase taxes across all of those areas when they have uh, very little transit service to begin with? And, and that's going to be a, a contentious and complicated discussion, and, and we've uh, uh, created a, a subcommittee to help have that discussion and hopefully facilitate some type of of compromise that everyone can live with. Well, it's uh, it's going to be a tough nut, and and I think the one takeaway that that I'm getting from talking to you and a number of other councillors and a couple of people on the finance staff is that unlike past years, they're not going to come back and say, "Oh, by the way, we found some money here. Everything's going to be okay." Uh, this is all on on council, and this is going to be a very very difficult a series of decisions to to try to get this thing down. Yeah, the, the 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 years of where they would come back and say, "Well, we can take this money out of the reserve fund or this money." I, I think those years are gone, and I think that the challenge that we have, and I, I know the councillors are, are well aware of it around the table, uh, is that there is lots of talk from economists that at some point there's going to be a recession or an economic downturn, and we have to be prepared for that too. So if we uh, raid our reserves 
to lower the taxes this year, when that downturn hits, we won't have the reserves to help us through there. So uh, you may be robbing Peter to pay Paul and in the future have even a larger tax hit to the residents. So we have to be aware of our economic conditions around us as well as what we're facing uh, as a municipality this year. Good luck with this, Brad. Thank you. We will need lots of luck. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll continue to talk about this in the days and weeks ahead. Appreciate the time today. No problem. Have a great weekend. You too. City Council Brad Clark. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's uh, been a lot of conversation since uh, the federal election a week or so ago, almost two weeks ago now, I guess, about the future of Andrew Scheer, especially as leader of the uh, Conservative Party. Uh, the uh, expectation, of course, before voting day was that uh, the Conservatives had a pretty good shot at forming government. Some even thought a majority government. And we all know now that it didn't work out that way. And well, the knives have been out. Uh, yesterday we told you about some of the comments that uh, Peter McKay made, of course, uh, about Shear himself, uh, <laughs> using the analogy of, uh, you know, losing the election was like having a breakaway on an empty net and missing the net. And on and on it went. Of course, he tried to walk some of that back a little bit later on, uh, suggesting, no, 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 I still support Andrew Shear. I just think that, that with the, we blew it. But there are others that have been much more pointed in their criticism, uh, suggesting that maybe it's time for a change in leadership already at the top. Uh one of those was uh, was a, a guy who's been in the news for the, the long re- a lot of long re- wrong reasons, of course, over the last little while, and that's Patrick Brown. Now, Patrick Brown, of course, uh, is now the mayor of the city of Brampton. He was the leader of the Ontario Conservative Party, Progressive Conservative Party, uh, but we all know about some of the escapades that he was accused of, and that caused his fall from grace. But he wrote an op-ed piece that was published in the Toronto Star the other day that said what the federal conservatives need is a Bill Davis style of politician. Uh, and that caught a lot of people to talking about that. And, and it also brought back some memories, of course, of the former premier of the province of Ontario, Bill Davis, who uh, w- ruled here for many, many years. And uh, it got a lot of people to thinking maybe it is time for a change in attitude and a, a change and maybe a, a throwback, I guess, to some of the old ways of uh, the Conservative Party, uh, concerning, obviously, that, uh, that maybe they've gone a little bit too far to the right. So I wanted to get a, a discussion about that. I wanted to talk about that and, and, and just see how this is going to shake down and if there is an appetite for that sort of thing. Now, I'm not even sure if if, uh, if Andrew Shearer is, is going to stay on as leader. Uh, there's supposed to be a leadership review uh, next spring in, in uh, April, I guess it is. And uh, I guess the conservatives are going to have to make up their minds about which way they want to go on this. So that's one element of this. But the other side is, if there is going to be a change, do you want somebody like a, a Bill Davis to lead that party? Or have they gone too far the other way? Uh I'm going to talk to Steve Haken about this. Steve, of course, is the host of The Agenda on TBO, which you see every weeknight, of course, and uh, also the author of a fabulous book about Bill Davis, too. Steve, first of all, thanks for jumping in here. I appreciate you joining us today. Not at all. Always good to be with you. Well, talk to, talk to me about this. I'm sure you read the piece by Patrick Brown a couple of days ago now, suggesting that uh, if there's going to be a change in leadership on the federal party, that they need Bill Davis. Well, not Bill Davis himself. He's probably a little bit too old to take on the job now. Uh, although I I don't doubt he could do it if he wanted to, but it, what what about what about that whole attitude? Because I think what Brown was was intimating here, Steve, is is maybe a kinder, gentler conservative face instead of what they seem to be getting, uh, and uh, which obviously was not palatable for the uh, the electorate in the last election. Well, Bill, just on the first point, I did attend Mr. Davis's 90th birthday party a couple of months ago. And I would offer that if he wanted to get back into politics, he wouldn't have any trouble winning an election because he's still plenty sharp. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, let's get that out of the way. No, I think the point that Patrick Brown is making, and I did read the piece uh, that was in the in the Star a few days ago, 
I think the point he's making is, is that if the, if the current incarnation of the Conservative Party of Canada wants to be the way it is, that's fine, but you're only going to appeal to a third of the country. And you can't win an election with only a third of the country. Mr. Brown's remedy for that would be to, kinder, gentler is one way of putting it, maybe, maybe reaching out beyond the base of the party so as to, to be more inclusive to other people uh, is, is the other way. And his view would be, there's no way that this party is ever going to win if it can only appeal to 33 or 34 percent of the Canadian electorate. If it doesn't get higher, you know, 37, 38, 39, if it doesn't get closer to 40 percent, it will never win. And in order to do that, it's got to be, it's got to stop being um, a rather narrow, small-c conservative coalition of groups, and it's got to broaden its base beyond that to a more, and this is the way Brown would put it, to a more progressive conservative party, very much along the lines of the party that ruled Ontario for 42 straight years. That's that's what he wanted to do when he was the leader of the Ontario PC Party. But as you pointed out in your introduction, uh, that all came to an end uh, of January of last year. How difficult is it going to be, Steve, for a party that, that had high expectations, that actually never did see them come to fruition, to do that kind of self-analysis, to say, hey, maybe it's not just him, maybe it's us? Well, they they know that that's what has to happen. I think that's the case. I mean, they they understand that if they want to broaden their the only way for them to win is to broaden their base. They've proven right now. Stephen Harper's last election, he got thirty two percent of the vote. Andrew Shear's last election last week, he got thirty four percent of the vote. Okay, so in four years, they managed to grow the party two percent. Uh, that's just no way to win. So I think there's an intuitive understanding that unless and I think Peter McKay's comments refer to this. Uh, you know, I was about to say, unless the Liberals really screw up mightily, and in McKay's view, they did, and the empty net was there to have the puck shot into, and in his view, this, this incarnation of the Conservative Party missed that net, uh, unless the Liberals screw up even worse, there's no chance that the Conservatives are going to get in. So something, something different has to happen. And whether that means repatriating the progressive Conservatives, the red Tories, who no longer feel comfortable in a more right-wing conservative party that maybe has too much of an accent on social conservatism, too much of an accent for the Tories to feel comfortable in. That's the big debate that this party has to have. Peter McKay, of course, represents that old progressive conservative party, that, that wing of, of the conservative coalition that is a little more on the progressive as opposed to conservative side. The, the big fear, of course, that the conservatives have is that if they, if they move their party a little too far to the middle in order to attract those more progressive voters, that they're going to alienate the hard base, you know, small C conservative part of their party, uh, who will, you know, go somewhere else. Maybe they'd go to Maxine Bernier's party. Maybe they'd go to a family coalition party. Maybe they'd stay home. So th- th- these are the dynamics that uh, every broad-based coalition party has to go through, and the conservative forces are going through it right now. And I know that they're, you know, touting the fact that, hey, you know, Andrew Scheer increased the vote total from 32 to 34 percent. But, Steve, there are a lot of disenchanted voters in this election that, that were looking for a choice. And, and I think that was probably one of the things that heightened the expectation that maybe this was going to be Andrew Scheer's day. Uh, but for some reason or another, they, they, they just didn't seem comfortable parking their vote there. In, in past elections, and you've covered so many of these over the years, uh, it was liberal conservative, liberal conservative. They were hardcore on either side of this, but there was a middle there of uncommitted voters that would swing from one party to the other. Uh, that swing didn't happen in this election. No, and you're so right about that. And the reason that those sort of liberal conservative switchers felt comfortable doing that is that, you know, if you think about that Venn diagram about how the circles intersect, there was a lot more intersection 
back in the day, right? There wasn't a huge amount of difference between, say, a, a, a blue grit and a red Tory. You know, they, they intersected on a whole bunch of issues. But now the Liberal Party is a far more left-wing party than it ever used to be. And the Conservative Party is a far more right-wing party than it ever used to be. And so those opportunities for shared values or coming together on a variety of issues, they don't exist as much anymore. And that leaves those liberal conservative switchers really unsure of what to do. And, and this time, you know, I think probably some of them stayed home. I think some of them may have gone green. Some of them may have gone NDP. Certainly the liberals in the dying days of the campaign managed to save their government. There's no, there's no doubt about that. They looked like they were going to be in, in potential trouble of losing. But Mr. Scheer made a few mistakes. And I think I, I, I feel pretty comfortable laying these out because, um, Bill, I don't know how many of your listeners might have watched. We had a pollster uh, named Aaron Kelly on the agenda every Friday during the campaign. Yeah. And as opposed to calling up 1,500 people by phone every night to get uh, a sounding of the electorate, she engaged with 277,000 people across the country with her artificial intelligence algorithm and managed to get uh, you know, deeper and richer polling than anybody else, I think. And as a result, we know a few things. Number one, we know that the way Mr. Scheer handled the whole social conservative issue, you know, his position on abortion, uh, was problematic for a lot of people. It's not that he held the position. It's that it was the lack of comfort with which he described his position to the electorate. He didn't handle well the whole issue of his dual citizenship. He didn't handle well the whole issue of whether he was or wasn't an insurance broker back in the day. And in the dying days of the campaign, he sort of let it out there that we're going for a majority government. And that scared a lot of progressive voters who decided, you know what, I can't take the risk voting NDP or Green. I'll hold my nose and vote liberal in order to stop Scheer from getting a majority. And as long as people, those liberal conservative switchers you just talked about, as long as they're still afraid to vote conservative because they just aren't comfortable with what they might be getting, it's hard to see the conservative vote going higher than the basic one-third that it gets today. Steve, I don't know if the feedback you're getting, but I mean, I'm talking even before the election. I've talked to people in the the conservative party from around this area, for instance, and we don't elect very many conservatives here in the Hamilton area much anymore. But I'm hearing, hey, where are the Lincoln Alexanders? Uh, You know, where are those people? Where are the, you know, the the Hugh Siegels, the Bill Davises? You know, those are my conservatives, and they're gone. And and they they feel, these people I'm talking to, and these are conservatives, they feel disenfranchised. I don't know that they're gone, Bill, but they're certainly homeless. And as a result, they really don't know what to do. I'll give you an example. Uh, Roy McMurtry was the sort of uh, red Tory attorney general during the 1970s and early 1980s in the Bill Davis government. Uh, He was, uh, by definition, a progressive conservative, you know, Uh, progressive on social issues, conservative on fiscal issues. And uh, Roy McMurtry's been voting. I mean, I know this. I don't. Maybe I shouldn't say it, but I, I mean, he said it to me, and I think he's made it public. He's been voting green the last several elections. He just does not see his brand of conservatism reflected in the current incarnation of the Conservative Party of Canada. And I'm willing to bet, I haven't asked him, but I'm willing to bet he didn't vote for Doug Ford in the last Ontario election either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what these folks do, these, these, these red Tories have been trying to come home, have wanted to come home, um, did briefly, I would suggest, in the late 2000s when John Tory was the leader of the Ontario PC Party, and probably would have voted for Patrick Brown had he been around. Let's remember, Patrick Brown was for the carbon tax. That was in his platform. Yep. He said there's no point in getting a, in a big fight about this. If, if we don't go for the carbon tax, they're going to force it down our throats anyway. So let's sign on, and Ontario will keep the revenue and do good things with it. 
So he was he was for the carbon tax. He was for record spending on mental health. Uh, he marched in the uh, Pride Day parade. You know, Patrick Brown was trying to move the Ontario PC party back to the sort of center of gravity for the Ontario political scene. And, of course, he was ousted, and Doug Ford took over and ran on a sort of overtly populist uh, agenda. And, uh, you know, as they say, the rest is history, and these red Tories are still homeless. Well, and I'm not trying to get Patrick Brown elected back into, into that politic. I'm sure he's quite comfortable doing what he's doing. But if you recall, Steve, when he was a, f- a federal member un- under the, Harris go- or the, the Harper government, he had that same reputation. Uh, they questioned, you know, his flexibility with LGBTQ rights and same-sex marriage, things of this nature. He evolved uh, when he got into provincial politics and, and, frankly, surprised an awful lot of people. And uh, me included, as a matter of fact, I had a chance to talk to Patrick on a number of different occasions, and I got the impression that he was pretty sincere in, in the way he was looking at things now. Uh, and, and I think that's what's causing an awful lot of frustration for other conservatives that want to embrace that, that kind of progressive attitude right now. I, I talked to our friend Charles Adler the morning after the election. Of course, he was on our, our global coverage. And, and, and Charles was pretty flippant. And Charles makes no bones about the fact that he's a conservative and has been conservative most of his life. Uh, and he said, look, this is a, a party that right now needs a heart transplant. And he said when they change their name and drop the word progressive, they stop being progressive. And he says, I think that's alienated an awful lot of people. Yeah, and I, I you know, I, I read Patrick Brown's book in, in which he describes I'm not sure how much of, a, of an epiphany he had after he left the federal scene and moved to the Ontario and then municipal scene. Um, my recollection from that book is that he, you know, he felt he needed to be more to the right wing of the political spectrum in order to ingratiate himself with the Stephen Harper folks who had a obviously much more conservative prime minister's office back then. He insists, I mean, he says in the book that his political hero growing up was Jean Charest. And Charest is a very, you know, he's a very progressive conservative, quite yeah. a, a moderate, centrist, pragmatic guy. Um, so my hunch is that Patrick Brown was was more of a right-wing conservative when he was in Ottawa because he felt that's how, that's the only way I'm going to get ahead. And uh, once he was freed of that uh, Harper yoke, if I can put it that way, uh, I think he sort of reverted to the way he was. And the way he was was a more moderate, pragmatic, progressive conservative who did not feel uncomfortable marching in the Pride Parade and who was happy to run on a much more moderate, pragmatic issue. I used to joke with him when I used to see him on the, on the, on the scene at Queen's Park. I used to say, you know, how many more times can you mention Bill Davis in your speeches? Because he used to drop <laughs> Mr. Davis's name at least 10 times in every speech, saying we need to recreate the Bill Davis coalition of, of a progressive conservative party. That, that, you know, the old line is, you know, a bird needs two wings to fly. And if a bird only has a right wing, he's not going very far. And that was the line Mr. Brown used to use all the time. Stole it from Joe Clark, I think, which was the line that Clark used to use as well. Yeah. So is this a moment that the conservatives can actually do that that soul-searching? And, and, and is this an opportunity for them right now? Or do they simply say, no, this is what we are these days, and people are going to just have to accept it? Well, you put your finger on the key question. And let's remember, Andrew Scheer won the Conservative Party leadership a couple of years ago by defeating... Maxime Bernier. Yeah. And he defeated Bernier by one point, one percentage point on the last ballot, which I think, because of the system they were using, I think it was a 12th or 13th or 14th ballot or something. It was in an, uh, it was a real marathon. Yeah. And and so the reality is, you know, Scheer won that election, but the alternative was Bernier, who was even further to the right. Remember, he's, he's got a much tougher policy on immigration. He's got a much tougher policy on supply management. He's got a much tougher policy on corporate subsidies and 
and using the tax code for that reason. Um, you know, he, he went off and found his own party, and that party looks like it's, you know, quite dead at the moment, although you never know, but it looks like it's quite dead. So I'm, you know, given who the base of the conservative party is today, I don't know that a more moderate, pragmatic, progressive conservatism is the alternative uh, to Andrew Scheer, uh, or what? This is something this party's going to have to figure out. Obviously, Peter McKay and his allies are are really hoping that they can move the party more to the middle, broaden the base. Um, I think there are 53 seats, Bill, in the greater Toronto area. You know, that's more than almost every other province. And like it or not, uh, you know, that's where you win elections. And the Liberals won 47 of 53. I mean, the fact is you just cannot give your opponent that kind of advantage, you know, year in and year out at election time and, and hope to be competitive and hope to win. So unless the Conservative Party has something on offer next time, and given that it's a minority parliament, next time's not going to be that long away, unless they have something that speaks to the people who live in the 416 and the 905 that resonates more, you know, there's really no reason to believe things are going to turn out any different. Well, I mean, they, they run the risk, I think, of, of becoming a regional party. And I know there's still going to be some support in northern Ontario and places like that, but uh, they don't score well in cities. I, I mean, with the exception of Calgary and Edmonton. But, I mean, in Vancouver and Toronto, Ottawa, Halifax, places like that. Uh, Montreal, Vancouver. Yeah, it, it's, just, right. it's just not working. And I, it's got to be, it's 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 what they stand for. I think that's what it is right now. You know, they, they're talking about things like climate change. They're talking about uh, millennials that have much more progressive ideas about a number of social issues right now. And and that's not in their platform. And I can see that. Where, that's one of the reasons I think that that's where they are right today. No question about that. I, I think if we learned one thing from this past election campaign, it's that you you. You cannot be taken seriously as a national party if you really have nothing to say about climate change. And whether we like it or not, you know, whether, you're, whether you're for the carbon tax or not, the Liberals had something to say about climate change. The Greens obviously did. The New Democrats obviously did. Uh, the Conservatives really didn't have a lot to say about climate change at all. And that clearly was problematic for a huge part of, of the electorate. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see just what these guys do uh, with the information as they go through the entrails of this uh, last campaign and see where they're going to go forward <laughs> on this. Uh, Steve, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Have a great weekend. Am I going to see you at the football game tomorrow night? No, you bet you are. <laughs> okay. Going for the record, Talk this. We, brother. We'll see you there. You betcha. Steve Haken, of course. Uh, thanks again, Steve. Uh, host of uh, The Agenda, which is seen on TVO. And, of course, uh, unabashed Tiger Cat fan as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In our conversation with Steve Pakin, uh, just in the last segment here, we were talking about uh, the key issues in the federal election. And uh, the number one issue, of course, is always going to be the economy. But number two, in most people's minds, was the environment. And I know the city of Hamilton passed a motion a little while ago, said that, you know, we're facing a climate crisis, which begs the question, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, uh, what's going to happen next week actually might set some courses and, and direction toward that. Uh, there's going to be a special uh, meeting that's going to be held uh, and uh, uh, w- with a special guest. And to talk about this, I'm so pleased to welcome back into the studio Maureen Wilson, the counselor for Ward 1, and uh, Narendra Nan from Ward 3 downtown as well. Uh, f- thanks for coming in today, both of you. I had a busy day. Glad you guys could make it in here. Good, Good morning. morning. Thanks for having us. Let's, let's talk about what's going to be happening next week. Excellent. Um, November November 4th, Monday night, mm-hmm. 6.30, Dave Braley Center, right across from City Hall. We have Diane Sachs coming in, the former Commissioner of the Environment, um, lawyer, environmental guru, knower of uh, 
She is traveling from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. She has a wealth of knowledge on best practices, what cities, towns, governments are are doing um, as more and more cities are declaring climate emergencies. She's going to be speaking with um, members of the public. It's a free event. Um, Also that day, she will be meeting with uh, city management and sharing her knowledge and uh, the ability for them to ask her some tough questions. Narendra, I guess to use an old colloquialism, uh, the, the fact that City Council passed this motion and declared that we're facing a climate emergency is, is laudable. Uh, so we're talking the talk, but are we walking the walk in our Hamilton? Well, this is the opportunity, right? I think that the decisions that we're going to be making as a council moving into the 2020 do- budget deliberations are going to help set the course of whether or not we are serious as a municipality about this climate emergency being declared, and more importantly, hearing back from our staff about what they're learning about best practices that they recommend that the city start with as well. You know, Bill, the end of the day, municipalities have a pretty incredible role to play, and it is about helping residents make sustainable choices on the day-to-day. And that means that we do have to find innovative solutions in terms of greening our energy consumption. It means that we have to have rigorous conversations about how we plan for land use and what our targets are in terms of what we're actually promoting in terms of our economic development that holds our social and environmental development at the core as well. But there are some people in this community, and I would dare say probably even some people on council, uh, that think, look, this is a global issue. This is not a municipal responsibility. We've got other fish to fry here. Let's let's let the United Nations or the federal government, mm-hmm. well, even the federal government, one guy that was running for prime minister didn't think it was a, a national issue either. So you don't have everybody on side with you on this issue. Well, it was a unanimous declaration that we uh, were facing a climate emergency. But to your point, um, do do members of council all fully believe it is an emergency? I'm not sure. Um, Is there an appreciation that with an emergency, it means all hands on deck and we have to do things differently? I'm not sure of that either. Um, I know there are a number of us around the table who um, will be asking tough questions and uh, looking for answers. I think um, before we got on air, we were talking about how unfortunate it is that the discussion about our climate has um, almost fallen into a a left-right divide. And I would argue that that is an opportunity for municipalities and particularly cities. We are an urban nation, and there is no party system at local government. So we're not confined, nor should we be confined by these ideological party constraints it is an opportunity for cities to to lead. I, I mentioned when I had Steve Pagan on just before you guys joined us here that uh, I was talking to Charles Adler the morning after the election. Uh, Charles and I have been friends for many, many years. Uh, and he talked about, as a conservative, the way things were going. And he asked that very same question. He said, when did it become bad for a conservative to be environmentally conscious? Because it did happen. Because it hasn't always been that way. I mean, you know, Brian Mulroney was a, a conservative prime minister. Uh, he, he got Ronald Reagan to sign an acid rain treaty. I don't know how he did that. Uh, but it, was, it, it used to be hand in hand. Well, uh, it, it doesn't seem to be that way anymore. You're a lefty if you're an environmentalist now. Well, if you look at in the In some word, people's minds. Yeah, if you look at the word conservation, um, inherent in it is the word to conserve. And my parents' generation... Um, they do conserve. They, it's bred in their bone. And they um, put a high premium on value and return. Um, and I, I think we have to revisit that. We are increasingly a disposable society. 
um, my father still saves the string that <laughs> that uh, the packages come wrapped in. They still um, they're they're highly um, motivated in that direction. But do they consider themselves as leading environmentalists? No. Um, but it, these are principles that they live by. Okay. Yeah, so, and, and it's interesting to me because you know, uh, I guess in today's day and age, right and left is uh, also a fiscal argument, right? So if yeah. you're you're right wing, uh, supposedly you care about fiscal responsibility, and uh, the reality with this issue is that there's actually a higher cost of doing nothing when it comes to our climate emergency. When we're dealing with the reality of some profound, profound impacts that we can anticipate occurring over the next twelve years, not only to our our environment and our species, but also the ongoing cost to our social well-being, the cost of housing, the cost of an aging population, the cost of and the increasing cost of health impacts as a result of the climate emergency and us continuing to operate and prioritize vehicles, prioritize industry, prioritize uh, economic development that is not tuned in to this holistic view that says it's actually much more expensive if we ignore this. It's much more expensive if we don't invest now to make the choices that will allow us to be in a much more sustainable situation moving forward. But are we doing a good enough job to connect those dots and and tell people exactly what's going on? You talked about health outcomes, for instance, and uh, the pressure on on hospitals. And I don't want to get into the phraseology about hallway medicine or anything, but I mean, hospitals are overcrowded. Well, but part of the reason is is that we're reactive with healthcare delivery here, not proactive. We we need to do something, and the environment plays a role in that. I'm not so sure everybody buys into that, though. I agree. And that's what I'm really looking forward to on Monday evening, an ongoing dialogue that's definitely been afoot in Hamilton, but in in bringing more people to the table and having this discussion so that we can deepen our understanding, deepen our awareness, deepen our ability to think creatively while also tackling something that's quite complex. Um, So from that perspective, you know, something that our city uh, and then that, that I'm committed to doing is how do we actually engage in dialogue that isn't about putting each other into camps, but instead is really truly about facilitating a dialogue and mutual understanding so that we can make some choices that are um, maybe not rested 100% in consensus, but at least in a shared knowledge base and an understanding of the interconnectedness of our, our economy, our environment, and our social issues. I, I wouldn't, uh, sorry, I wouldn't exactly call the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England um, um, leftist organizations. And there's a reason Mark Carney, who is now the governor of the Bank of England, is raising, and has been for over a year now, uh, financial alarm bells. Um, climate change is going to exert an enormous amount of pressure on our financial capacities as uh, residents and as cities and all levels of government. And it is exactly as Councillor Nan just enunciated, the cost of inaction Uh, We've seen even this past year, we've had to come up with millions and millions and millions of dollars in shore mitigation because of the extreme rains that we're getting and what impact that has on water levels. When you continue, and we are going to continue to have this, uh, cities like Hamilton are going to lose control of their ability to um, direct their budgets, what I call budget sovereignty. They're going to give up control of of where they want to invest if they do not get out in front of this issue now because you're going to be in a constant response and you're going to go bankrupt. Let's talk about money uh, because in, in many people's minds, that's the, the, the lowest common denominator here. Uh, there is still a mindset, and I'm sure you've heard this as elected officials, 
that, okay, that sounds like a great idea, and yeah, we want to have cleaner air, and yeah, we need to do something about this, but it's going to cost way too much. It's going to have a negative impact on the economy, and our taxes are going to go up, and we just don't want to go down that road. Well, I would say, Hamilton, um, and you're reading a lot of this, uh, the green green industry. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to um, a a talk last month. If you you look at the... um, those areas where we're seeing the sources of G, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, um, one is the private automobile and the other are buildings. Um, so we're going to have to, we are going to be forced to retrofit our buildings. We will, we will not have right now the, um, the labor and the trained labor available to respond to that. So green industry is... Um, it is increasingly a source of income. It is increasingly an economic force. And I believe Hamilton has that opportunity to lead on that front. Absolutely. I think we have to we have to be very deliberate uh, in our economic development strategy to say that we want to be an attractor of green industry, that we have lands and we have space available for, for folks who want to, whether it's incubate their green industry ideas and um, be part of the innovation that is here in Hamilton and use Hamilton's production base and manufacturing base um, as an opportunity to uh, provide the labor, provide the training for spurring a new green industry in our city. I believe it's possible if we are sophisticated about our approach and who we're attracting, who we do business with in our city. But I think we also need to look at creative solutions around revenue generation to help fund some of these climate initiatives. The city of Ottawa, for example, in 2017, created a green bond program, which allows investors to invest in municipal green infrastructure projects. That's how they're paying for their light rail transit system. That's how the municipality was able to build up their coffers to put in place and invest in the the day-to-day choice that residents can make for a sustainable future to get out of their vehicles and use a robust transit system. So I think it's it's incumbent on us as a municipality to look at those, not just monitor those programs, but actually pick it up and look at what is the green infrastructure project that's going to make tremendous impact that we can commit to as a municipality, that we can commit to as a council and say, yes, this amount of money for this initiative, and this is what we're going to track, and this is this is our this is our attempt right now to do uh, something that will have a profound and measurable positive impact on the environment. And if that is investing in our transit so that we have a robust system that connects neighborhoods, connects different portions of our community, and encourages people to get out of their vehicles, then that is a tangible positive impact that we can find the money for if we're innovative about our revenue generation. But we got a long way to go when it comes to something like that. I mean, because the criticism I always hear about transit here in this city is, look, if it's not affordable and it's not convenient, I'm not getting on there. Uh, that's all there is to it. I, I mean, we, one of our daughters, I mean, his, well, she lived in Toronto when she was going to university for the last number of years, doesn't have a driver's license, doesn't want one. I mean, mm-hmm. she, she's you know, transit everywhere. I mean, and she's fine with that. And and, and it's problematic here because we're just not there yet. And just talking to Councillor Clark in the first hour, I mean, where, his representation up there in Stony Creek Mountain. He says, look, there's, there's literally no transit service up here. So he says the residents are saying, I don't want to pay more for it. We've got to get over that hump. We, that, that's one of the huge obstacles right now. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I always find it interesting when we talk about transit as a cost, but we're not prepared to compare it to the cost of, our, um, of the existing. So how are you going to respond to that? Are you going to expropriate property and add more lanes? Every time you, uh, you add a lane of traffic, you're adding the maintenance of that lane, 
the salting of that lane, the plowing of that lane, the ongoing work that has to go into maintaining and keeping that lane open. And we just, we don't have the money, we don't have the capacity to do that. Um, And further to the example that you gave of your daughter, what we're also finding now is the number one issue that companies are looking for when they're locating is a uh, educated workforce. What is that educated workforce looking for? When they're having to make a decision between whether they buy a car or whether they're using transit, they want to use transit. And we need to attract those young, brilliant minds here in Hamilton. That's part of our economic development future. It should be. And they're there. I mean, we have the bones for this. I mean, some of the industries you talked about, Narendra, the green industries, I mean, you know, the Automotive Research Center right across the road from us here is developing. I mean, we're not going to get rid of cars tomorrow, mm-hmm. but you can make them more efficient. And they're doing that on a daily basis. We don't we don't beat the drum enough about the stuff, the stuff that we are doing here. And some of the new buildings, we are looking at green technologies for this stuff. So uh, it's there. That I, I guess we're starting to build that infrastructure. But, I mean, it... <clears throat> the fact that this is being classified as a climate emergency it basically means we're going to have to do, well, you know, drastic times call for drastic measures. We're going to have to, you can't just say, oh, we're going to do this incrementally because that's not, we're going to fall behind even further. Well, Hamilton has a choice. We can uh, lead or we can follow. And when you follow, you have fewer choices. So let's talk about Monday again. It's going to be at the David Braley Center. That's, uh, of course, the, the building right across the road from Hilton City Hall. Free? It's absolutely free. It starts at 6.30. Um, Diane Sachs will be speaking and imparting what she's learned, um, what Hamilton might give consideration to. It will be p- followed by a panel discussion with Councillor Nan on the panel, myself, Councillor Danko, uh, Jeanette Smith, the city, city manager, manager, and Diane Sachs herself. And uh, also Ian Borzak from Environment Hamilton. Thank you. Uh, attend, if you can. And uh, maybe what we'll do, a follow-up session maybe next week sometime. We'll talk about exactly what happened at that particular session, okay? Love Thank to. You. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much for coming in today. Maureen Wilson and Noreen Nan from Hamilton City Council. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.